You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Now we all know that Sportiva makes the best climbing shoes this side of the Parthenon. But it turns out that even the most dedicated dirtbags have to spend an ungodly amount of time on the flats among the sad, lost, lowland civilians. And that's where Sportiva's approach shoes come in. Legends like the Boulder X can comfortably scramble you up slabs, boulders, easy pitches until the big guns come out. And for when you're not actually in the mountains, well, as you peruse the hemp milk selection at the whole paycheck, nothing says, don't fuck with me, I've climbed El Cap, like a brightly colored pair of TX3s that are relentlessly scuffing the floor. Bellied up to the bar for that post-near-death experience beer, let them know those gobies didn't come from labor with a pair of impossibly lightweight TX2s. Can't dance? No problem. They'll know you're at least a badass climber if you're jerking around the dance floor in a pair of high-top blades. After all, isn't the day-to-day drudgery just a protracted scramble to the next climb? Whether you're actually at the cliff or just standing up in your best friend's wedding, you better be ready in a pair of multi-sport approach shoes from Sportiva. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, yeah, big place. That's That's a big place. You sold it out. out. The hell are you doing? Couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on Europe, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is February 9th. Just after midnight here in Colorado. Yep, it's a late one. And on today's episode, episode 145 of the Enorma Cast, my friend Mary Harlan. Don't know who Mary Harlan is? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I mentioned on last show that I'll be headed out at the end of February to the annual American Alpine Club benefit dinner as a guest of theirs, although I'm pretty sure I'm also supposed to bust my own table. We'll see about that. And I'm excited to be up in the Northeast, get some interviews. You guys have sent in a bunch of emails with great suggestions. I've got some good stuff lined up, along with some folks at the American Alpine Club. I also want to mention that the American Alpine Club is taking applications for the Live Your Dream grants. Live Your Dream grants are small grants to any level of climbers. Um, If you write in and apply, they might give you a little cash, get your trip done. Um, There's some requirements, but uh, it's pretty much open to anybody. Anybody, any age, any objective. So check it out. Go over there to AmericanAlpineClub.org and uh, get your application in by March 31st. And you might get a check from the Alpine Club. At least pay for some gas or something. Buy a new sleeping bag. Who knows? Anyway, that's going on over there at the American Alpine Club. And I'm headed out there at the end of the month. So you guys have made great suggestions about who to interview. I've got a bunch of stuff lined up including some of the dignitaries that are going to be at the uh, benefit dinner. So I should come back with a treasure trove of interviews from that whole thing. Again, thanks for your suggestions, but um, I've gotten plenty. So (laughs) I'll actually just keep them coming. Who cares? 
even if I don't get your person done on there, at least you put them on the radar and I could put them on the list and, and hopefully talk to them uh, later in the year or some other time. You can send all that stuff and anything else you want to talk to me about at chris at Okay, so we've got another long one here today, so I'm going to get right to it, but I want to tell you a little bit about who Mary Harlan is and uh, why we had her on the show. First of all, uh, she's a friend of mine and a Carbondale local and a big fan of the show. Always a good open critique when I talk to her about uh, what's going on in the Enormacast, actually. And, um, you know, she piqued my interest because a lot of folks write into me and, and kind of say, well, why don't you have somebody on who's who's kind of more of an every person, who's getting it done, getting a lot done, but also living kind of a normal life, which is what most of us are trying to do out there, right? Is just keep things going in our lives, but also climb as much as we can and climb well and climb hard and stay fit. And it's quite a massive thing to juggle. And some are more successful at it than others. Anyway, Mary's one of those people who's very successful at it. And she's got quite an arc of trying to become a sponsored climber, trying to become a great climber and uh, moving into a place where she's got a son and she's married and has a career, um, but also still wants to keep doing these great big objectives and a lot of perspective in here for Mary. So that's why we sat down and it's going to fill that niche a little bit, although she's rather extraordinary. She's not just a average person by any means. I don't think you'll feel that once you uh, hear the interview. So Anyway, maybe some tips in here about how to get it done and or just some commiserating on, you know, somebody that's had to juggle a lot of stuff to uh, to keep her dreams alive in the mountains. And uh, you're probably doing a little bit of that, too. So enjoy this one with Mary Harlan. I don't know what's happening in your neck of the woods, but out here in the great American West, it's the start of desert crack season, which means two things. The bros are charging up their Bluetooth speakers and people are wondering where the hell they're going to get enough cams. But Black Diamond has your back. On top of the heap are the Camelot Ultralights. Cams so fleet that Elon Musk once shot one into space strapped to a bottle rocket. And then there's the venerable C4, the cam that still rules the creek. And legend has it, if you whisper Camelot, 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 into a mirror while holding a red C4 to your forehead, the location of the easiest for you 12 minus will be revealed. And don't forget the dinky Camelot X4s and X4 offsets. But do forget about clean underwear if you start whipping on the .1 in sandstone. But wherever your crack reveals itself, remember, BD has you covered with the sweetest cams known to man. Check them all out at blacktimeandequipment.com or your favorite local shop. Um, all right, Mary, th- this will probably come right on the back of the uh, the last episode. Sometimes oh. there's a big gap in them. Mm-hmm. Just depends on what how everything works out. But I'm pretty sure this will be right on top of the taps kill your daily chain <laughs> ish, uh, episode, <laughs> which has only been out a couple of days right now, and mm. I'm not. I haven't yet to get much grief about it. Um, usually, like it takes a little while, but mm-hmm. uh, perhaps by the time this comes out, I will have gotten some grief about it. Um, but you wanted to just quickly start with a rebuttal <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> against the uh the PAS. Yes. Uh, but first of all, what's your deal with the PAS personal anchor system versus the actual daisy chain? Okay. Well, so I guess probably most people know this, but I don't know. Maybe most people don't. So Soon they don't. The daisy chain, which is an aid climbing tool, yes, is one piece of sewn webbing and it's one it's it's two pieces of sewn webbing 
one that's flat and then the other piece is sewn on at intervals. No, it's only one though. It's still a loop. It is still a loop. Yeah. See, I didn't even know that. But what right. I do know is that it's, was, it's a device that's used for aid climbing only and it actually can't hold a fully shock loaded drop of weight. Like you right. can't shock load those things. Well, you can't shock load the pocket stitches. Uh-huh. They'll break, but the idea is that eventually you run it, it rips into a circular piece One of One thing. Yeah. But by that, by the time that happens, like the shit hit the fan so hard that who knows what's about yeah. to happen to you. Yeah. Because if you're starting to rip those tacks off, there's a bigger problem. Wrong. So <laughs> there's a bigger issue. Who knows? I mean, yeah, it's one of those things that theoretically it all, something happens that yeah. they know about, but... Yeah. Like I said, if you're if you've cut your haul bag loose or something and it's about to tear you from your from your from your uh, daisy chain. And from your anchor or whatever, then who knows? You're, yeah. You you have a bigger you issue. You look down and you're like according to the video of Black Diamond I watched, <laughs> as, your, as your haul bag is, is about to reach the end of its like static tether. Right. You're like, I'm gonna be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um so, so the PAS, the personal anchor system, yeah. is the one with the little Little like sewn ringlets that go together that right? are each individually rated, right? And so they're all like little mini, strings. yeah. And so, this is what happened I was working on my project, my three routes in a day thing, okay. and I was with a partner, Helen Sinclair. And Helen worked on Yosar, and Helen was like, basically looked at me and said you know, are you willing to learn new things? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, you need a PAS. And I was like, why do I need a PAS? And she said, you need a PAS because if you want to move super fast between pitches, that's what's going to hold us up. We can climb at whatever rate we want to climb at because we're not using specialized techniques for the climbing. Like we don't have anything that's going to like, like a soloist or something at our disposal. I one of the things about the project is that I wanted to do all of the routes in a traditional style. So we're not using any special speed things, but what we are doing is um, utilizing kind of the normal climbing techniques and trying to make those normal things faster. So what do you mean? Like you're pitching everything and are you uh, not necessarily the... pitching it pitch right. by pitch? Like I lead every pitch on Shun's buttress, right. except for one. Okay. Um, and then she and actually the other partner that I worked on with this and probably Madeline, who's doing it with me in the spring, like then that other partner leads almost every pitch of sheer lunacy right. except four. So we're not necessarily pitching it out that way, and we're combining pitches when we can. Like on right. Shun's buttress, I combine But four are you pitches. like using the PDL and all that sort of thing? Is that the stuff you're saying you're not using, the Peck Danny Death Loop? And No, we're yeah. not using any right. of that. It's like pretty traditional right. style. Because my goal isn't necessarily to climb it as fast as I can. Mm -hmm. My goal is just to do it all under 24 hours. So right. if it takes me 23 hours and... 59 minutes. 59 minutes. I'm happy. Good. I'll be good. So um, one of the things, though, that I like about the PAS and I like about this for doing multiple pitches in a day, like okay. at Indian Creek, 30 pitches in a day, yes, is when you get to the top of the... Oh, I know you did 40, didn't you? <laughs> 
Anyway, go on. <laughs> hey, I did 30, okay? Um, I'm go almost on. Go there. On. Go on with your story. Sorry. The thing I like about the PAS is that when I get to the top and there's anchors, like already set anchors, I can clip into those anchors and instantaneously say off belay. And that way, my partner who's down below hopefully um, already has gotten herself or himself ready. Um, can start climbing as soon as possible. Okay. And that's why I like the PAS is because I can clip into the anchors super quick and on multi-pitch, and then the person can start coming up almost as soon as I put them on belay, which is literally the next thing I'll do anyway. Okay. So that's the usefulness, usefulness in that, which was not mentioned in the last um, podcast. However, um, I do not wear it for sport climbing. Right. So, so I <laughs> so, think... My sort of, I guess, my rebuttal to the rebuttal is that, yes, they're sold. They have multiple uses. Yeah. And I think they have specialized uses. Mm -hmm. And that's one where you found the specialized mm -hmm. use. And when you're done with that project, you take it off of your harness. Yeah. And then it goes in a wave until you're doing something where you're like, this is going to be specifically yeah. useful. The, and I, and I said, we said this on the podcast, and is that... I mean, I'm, I, the, the reason I say kill your daisy chain is because, mm. again, more often than that, I, it's misused. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and I agree. It's like Andrew said. It's like it's too. It's too. It appears to be too useful. You want it to clip it to everything all the time. Yeah, it's true. And the fact is, is that you and all of your climbing, you know, your your solid everyday climbing partners. Yeah. They use them here, and then they get rid of them for for all the other things. Mm -hmm. And and my big thing was the sport climbing one. It just it doesn't have a place there. It just it just doesn't. And I'm just gonna say one other time that I've really found a PAS mm -hmm. useful, and that is in dry tooling. Oh well, I know that was on our list. Right, we so never got to dry tooling. Dry tooling is being like, <laughs> is it dead? Is it this? It's very much alive. I, know I it will is, but, say that. Yeah. And and just to kind of preface this, the reason why I got into dry tooling is not because um, I like using ice tools on rock because I would much rather use my hands, but it makes my brain stronger. Like I actually feel like I am gaining strength in my brain when I'm dry tooling. Explain. Basically, I just feel like when I'm dry tooling, for me, it is the scariest thing in climbing because a you have this fingernail sized point mm -hmm. on usually pretty crappy rock i mean none of the dry tooling rock is you wouldn't go up to it and be like wow this is awesome i'm gonna rock climb this it's generally crumbling beneath your feet or your tools so that's the first thing. The second thing is that most dry tooling areas that I've been to, which isn't that many, but the ones I've been to, all the holds are marked with colored chalk. So you'll see pink or blue or purple chalk marks. Really? Where you put your tool. I had no idea. Yeah. Really? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty, okay. it's pretty awesome. It would be like, like all the holds being taped so on a rock So what do the line. colors denote? Uh, nothing. It's just whatever color that the that the um, person who chalked it for you that season or the first ascensionist wanted it to be. And then you'll usually find a collection of chalk at the base of the route or in the climbing zone so that you can remark it if it gets 
rubbed off somehow um, or if the hole breaks. So um, essentially, you know, you put your tool down and for me, the first thing I think of when I'm up there and I'm freaking out internally <laughs> and sometimes externally is when I put the tool and I set it and I turn my head to the mm -hmm. side because the first thing I think about is the rock is crumbling already. It's not very awesome. And the tool's probably going to pop because the rock's going to break and it's going to then break my cheekbone. But I'd rather it break my cheekbone than my pop in my eyeball. Right. And for the dry tooling ice tools, you take off the ads part. So it's just the hammer or mm -hmm. it, it, it's kind of like a naked ice tool kind of looking thing. And, um, you know, I climb with people that are awesome. I mean, a couple of my dry tooling climbing partners are amazing. And so they reassure me that my tool is not going to break my face. And mm -hmm. even if it does, that's not so bad. So Has anyone ever thought about padding that thing? I don't know. I mean, I do. That, would that be like just not seen as like cool? It probably wouldn't be cool or ethical or something. I I've never seen that. I've seen the handles of them taped right. with electrical tape so that the a lot of people who dry tool wear golf gloves. Uh -huh. Your hands don't sweat, especially right. on like a warmer day. So um, the golf gloves stick to the electrical tape really well, especially on like the second grip or the mm -hmm. third grip now, because a lot of tools have a third grip. Um, but I have kind of the standard black diamond tool that has a second grip. And so I'm, I'm kind of turning my head as I place the tool and I'm moving my feet up and I have been wearing, um, rock climbing shoes the whole time. I've tried it with my clunky ice climbing boots and crampons. And I really find that to be far scarier than if I have climbing shoes. So right. what I do is I'll have um, hand warmers inside the climbing shoes and then I'll put the climbing shoes in my jacket. So while I'm belaying somebody else, the shoes are getting warm and then I'm wearing Sorrel's. And so when it's my turn to climb, I just put my warm climbing, you know, like sport climbing shoes on and I, start up the route so I feel like at least my feet have some sensitivity to what's going on below me even mm -hmm. though I'm my hands and the other thing about dry tooling too is that you have to keep your elbow and your forearm in the same spot so when you're moving if you find a good tool placement the chalk mark mark in these sport climbing zones you have to move your body around the tool without moving your forearm and your elbow because that's the position that it works the best. Right. In. So if you twist your arm and elbow, then the tool might come skating Exactly. It's it's... Or really what happens huh. is the tool pops. Right. And um, again, I mean, for me, this is a mental game because I find it to be totally terrifying. But I do it every season. I pick a dry tooling route that I want to project. So one season it was Tic Tac in Uray and Seamstress. Um, the season before that it was like Chinese something or other. It's an M5 that really feels like an M8. Um, the next season it was the first pitch of Red Bull and Vodka in Vail. And then I took last year off of climbing last winter off completely to rest my body. But this year I'm going to do or try to do amphibian, also in Vail. 
in just the first pitch because see these all now have second pitches that go out this ginormous huge roof right and i don't know how to figure four yet like i've been doing this i've been dry tooling for like this will be my sixth fifth fifth or sixth season and i don't do figure fours yet i don't really know how i don't trust the tools like in that way yet so i'm just you know i give myself one project and generally i I accomplish it, but with a lot of fear and, you know, I definitely overgrip. So I, I want to talk about you on this podcast. Okay. But now you've opened this little can of worms that I have to go to because <laughs> I had no, this was actually on our list for the last show. Um, but we, none of us, I think, had any idea about this colored chalk thing. But yeah. I, I won't go there too deeply. Okay. But um, the the question I have is, is couldn't you, do you do this when it's cold out because it's, because you'd rather be rock climbing when it's warm out? Because couldn't you just go do this in the dead of summer? Yeah, So and people do. Right. And actually, what I've noticed is that as I get older, I get more and more concerned with looking cute at the crag. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh. As you get older, you do? Yeah. <laughs> when I was, and, and this could feed in actually to how I got started climbing, because one of the things that, and I write about this, um, I wrote about this on my blog that I really don't keep up on anymore and I don't there's, even. There's like not a climber alive who keeps up on their blog. Yeah, I don't really know how to do that, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, there really isn't. I, I, whoever is doing that and keeping up on the on their blog is, that's amazing, you've got time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I, um, that I considered to be like an amazing climber, like I wanted to be, like these climbers Mm -hmm. when I first started climbing was that they had horrible BO. And I know you worked with Dan Gambino at Mm -hmm. um, Colorado Mountain School. Yes, of course. So when, when I was first starting to climb, I took courses. I was like, oh, I'm going to take an outward bound course. And now I'm going to take a Colorado Mountain School course and I'm going to learn how to do this properly. And you're going to learn how to stink? And Dan Gambino... Well, first of all, I guess prior to that, I worked at Mount Rainier National Park mm-hmm. as a volunteer climbing ranger through right. the Student Conservation Association, which is an awesome group. And while I was there, I noticed that all the real climbing rangers that were getting paid smelled horrible. <laughs> like they all, they smelled so bad. And I was like... <laughs> That is the stench of a climber. Oh, that's the stench of success. <laughs> yes. Just like sneaking into their cabins at night and like yeah. whiffing their clothing. Yeah, like these people smelled horrible. Now, uh-huh. granted, it's probably something to do with the fact that they also were getting their clothing from Patagonia clothing, which back then the capillaries smelled yeah, really they, bad. <laughs> it's been an ongoing like technological sort of holy grail is to get this stuff that doesn't stink. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I want to smell like these people because they are real climbers and they're paid climbing rangers. Right. So I vowed that I would like fill these shoes. How does Dan Gambino fit into this? Were you so, going to say that he smells? Well, so this is what He's going to get pissed at us. Okay. If you, if well, you he knows that. this because okay. I posted this publicly <laughs> on my blog and he, he commented and it was okay. I mean, okay. I didn't get totally bashed, but um, basically what happened was... That was in 1999. In 2001, I took a Colorado Mountain School course, Mm -hmm. an eight-day winter mountaineering ice climbing course with Celine Servo. Sure. 
And I was at the end of the course, I was in uh, Ed's Cantina in mm-hmm. Estes Park. And I'm sitting there and, and like Celine invited me to hang out at Ed's with him and other guides. And sure. I was like, oh, oh right my God, on. I get to hang out with the guides of Colorado Mountain School. This is so awesome. Um, I ended up getting to stay in the climber shack. No way. Way. Well, that's a that's a big honor because we, when I was there, we had a pretty strict no clients in the in the shack uh-huh. rule. But of course, you're of the proper gender to get through the door. So. Uh, no clothes were removed that evening. Okay, I'm I'm not saying anything like that. But <laughs> it definitely was a plus. I I felt really cool and honored. Yeah. And um, so we were sitting at the bar top in Ed's Cantina. And I lifted my arm up because I was like, oh, man, I kind of stink. And um, and Dan did the same thing, except I kind of turned my head when he did it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, my B.O. is just like Dan Gambino. <laughs> it's it was... fucking weird, Mary. <laughs> I just got to tell you, like... <laughs> <laughs> to me, I was like, I was like, wow, I'm making it. Like, I right. smell like a guide. That's, that's it. Because I really secretly wanted to be. Because a... that's you know, guys, people. I just got an email from a dude. Like, <laughs> I think it's in my inbox. I haven't responded. He's like, basically, like, how do I, how do I get you know into climbing and become a good climber? Like, I get that kind of Stank. thing all the time. I, I've been steering them towards like learning how to climb, towards like your technique. I'm like, yeah, maybe you should take a course and like. Learn how to do this, that, and the other thing. And I've been, it's, it's like, about the stench. you should just go live under a bridge for like a month and you're done. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just had this image of like being mm-hmm. at Mount Rainier and right. being in the climbing shack and like, you know, up at 10,000 feet at Camp Mirror. And first of all, feeling pretty awesome that like all these other people couldn't come in the climbing shack. Like yeah. I was like, ooh, I get to be in the climbing shack. Yeah. Now, granted, I was like digging a privy and like you know dealing with people's frozen shit but you know there was that thing for me where i was just like this is what being a climber is like it's like living out of your van or your car and you know you can't shower all the time because you're guiding and Mm -hmm. then you're climbing when you're not guiding and well how did you get these notions to begin with oh you grew up in missouri so, because so, did you go to school there, or did you grow up there? I grew up in Webster Groves, Missouri, okay. which is tiny. Right. And actually, um, there is a really awesome climbing community there. So every time I visit St. Louis, I hang out and climb with people there. The So Ill guys, mm-hmm. um, the Chancellor brothers, started a sweet climbing gym there. And so every time I go there... Um, and, you know, this is kind of awesome because they're like, oh, you're Mary Harlan. And they, like, let me in for free sometimes. Oh, wow. It's, uh-huh. I'm almost there. <laughs> Just so you know. But um, That never happens to me. A lot of people will be like, oh, you're from the Enormal Cast. I'll be like, yes. And then they'll cha-ching. <laughs> That'll be 1750. I'm like, ah, god damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's awesome, and I love those guys, and I love St. Louis, actually. Uh-huh. People are like, oh, you're from misery, and I'm like, no, I actually grew up in a sweet community of people. Did not climb at all. Um, I was a cross-country runner and a ballet dancer, and I started ballet late. I was uh, 12 <laughs> when I started. 
All these other girls are just like, oh my god. Well, so I started. <laughs> She's so huge already. <laughs> well, I started at the kind of this like Mickey Mouse school of dance. There, you know, like it mm-hmm. wasn't awesome. And then a friend of mine, when I was fourteen and I was a freshman in high school, she was like, "You should come check out the studio." that I dance at. So I show up in like my Jane Fonda leotard, you know, like super high cut. And, um, and the long and short of it was that I looked different than all these girls. I like wasn't uh, as fit as they were. I couldn't really do what they were doing. I was not a ballet dancer. And I saw this image or I just kind of saw the way these girls were and I was like I want to be like that so you know I decided that I was going to be a professional ballet dancer if it was going to kill me Mm -hmm. and um, that was the path I chose to go on and at this new dance studio you know I was 14 and some of these girls that I started with were already going off to professional ballet companies in New York City and I was like oh my god I'm so far behind the curve so I started taking ballet classes intermediate and advanced classes and it was kind of embarrassing taking the intermediate classes because everyone was like 10 and I was 14 (laughs) yeah yeah that's a big difference yeah it was it was challenging for me to do that at 14 to do like the advanced class and the intermediate Mm -hmm. class with the 10 year olds But I just sucked it up and was like, this is what I need to do to get to where they're at. And then once I get to where they're at, I'm going to get to where I want to be at. Right. And that journey took me from the time I was 14 until I was like 21. And I went to uh, Russia and went there with a ballet group and had a solo. And it was so awesome. It was to a Chopin piece of music. And I just put my heart and soul into this solo I had and into being a a student at the International Fine Arts Institute in Vologda, Russia, and um, realized that I was going to make it. I'm like, I'm going to be a professional ballet dancer. And at the time, I was a ballet major at Webster University. And I came back and I was back for like two months. And I just thought, I do not want to do this anymore. It it was just it different. Peaked. I peaked. It was well, awesome. Well, you peaked. Like the whole, maybe the whole... The experience yeah, was Yeah, it done. was like, okay, this is probably my moment. I was done. Yeah. I, I, do we like, have video footage of this action? No. What? I, I have photographs. I mean, you know, I, I actually, there might be a VHS video, um, which dates me In a, a box bit. in, the, in there, your parents' basement. Somewhere. Yeah, okay. I think there's a VHS, but... I was just kind of like done with it intellectually too. I just felt like one thing about my body type is that I always had broad shoulders and then like really narrow hips and onward, (laughs) downward. And at that time period, there was a transition going on in the dance world where dancers were going from being really willowy and wispy, wispy, which really translated to they were all freaking anorexic. Mm -hmm. And there was this transition going on to where they were in that body type going to more athletic body types. And I was just kind of in that transition and I didn't feel like, I felt awkward. Right. 
And so I thought, well, what am I going to do with myself now? So in high school, I'd run cross country. I joined the cross country team on my college team and subsequently became captain of the team. And I also joined the swim team and had no idea what I was doing other than I knew how to swim from childhood. Right. And they kind of molded me into a swimmer and I became the um, captain of the co-captain of the swim team with another girl and a distance swimmer. And I started to realize that I was an athlete like far beyond the ballet. I could be an athlete that was like strong and powerful. And that was also where I was like, I need to do something different with my life. What do I do? And I kind of walked into the political science department of my university and said, I think I want to be a political science major. I have enough credits to do this. And this woman talked to me for about 20 minutes, and we both realized that she was my mother's college advisor. Oh. And she was like, I'll be your college advisor, because I was going to the same school my mom mm-hmm. went to. And um, I told her about myself, and she said, you don't really belong in class. Let's see if you can finish out your college years off campus taking really unique course coursework and course study. And so I went to uh, Outward Bound and I did a semester course at Outward Bound and that's where I was introduced to rock climbing. And there was two climbing gyms in the country at that point. Right. Was, this was 1998. Okay. And I was blown away. Uh, and I saw that there were people teaching rock climbing. And that was the thing that I was like, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to teach people how to do this because it really had a profound impact on me to learn how to rock climb and realize that I could do all these things with my body. And I'd been so pigeonholed into you can go running and you can go do ballet, but in, and that was, you know, for me, that was my Midwest life. But like going out West for my outward bound semester course, that was awesome. I mean, I like learned how to be a person, really. <laughs> I was like, like you lived the pamphlet. Like that's what outward bound I is supposed did. to do for you. And, and there was like, I can't, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed to say right now, I can't remember. There was like these five pillars of outward bound and, one of them was like sensible self-denial and another one was like, um, um, I don't know, there was like five pillars. And I don't remember them, but at the time, when, from the time of when I went to Outward Bound until well beyond after I became an Outward Bound instructor, I'm going to live by this. I, this is me. And I was pretty serious about it. I mean, Outward Bound instructors, when I run into them today that I worked with back then, were like, God, you're kind of a prude you know like they were all kind of out there partying right and i was like no i can't party like i have to be look it says here in the rules you're not supposed to be partying i know exactly i was like i have to be the model outward mount instructor i have to Mm. you know be this way because it's like to me that was like integrity and humility and all these really awesome ways of being and I wanted to be that person, and I basically told myself, I'm going to be this person because this is the person that you need to be in order to be a guide. Right. And that was the whole thing about, like, 
Dan Gambino and his stench or like, <laughs> like me being proud of the fact that like, wow, I smell like Dan Gambino and he's a real guide. <laughs> I wish the audience knew how funny this all was to me. Um, Cause I know Dan really well, actually. So he's, he's awesome. So that's how I got into climbing though, okay. was the outward bound course. And I didn't even get hired once I decided I wanted to be an outward bound instructor. The um, woman who was doing the hiring, her name was Jill Lawrence. I think she still is doing some hiring. But, you know, I told her this thing. I was like, hey, I've wanted to be an outward bound. This was in 2001 now. I wanted to be an outward bound instructor since I was a student in 1998. And... um you know, I have built my life around trying to be an instructor since then. And I, in 2000, applied for a job at Outward Bound and they said, go home and go have some more epics and come back when you're ready. Really? Yeah. All right. Because back then they didn't just, I mean, I don't know if they're just hiring anyone now, but there was a time period where they kind of <laughs> had. Probably, just anybody. They kind of <laughs> had to hire just anybody for like a short time period because right. they were short instructors. Right, right. I mean, nobody wants to really get paid $55 a no, day. It's yeah. It's really hard. So I came, they said, no, go have epics. I went and had some epics. And my version of having epics was like, I'm going to go solo a bunch of glaciated peaks in the North Cascades. Mm-hmm. So I went and soloed Mount Jefferson. I soloed two of the three sisters. I soloed Mount Hood. They wouldn't let me solo Mount Rainier because I didn't have a good enough resume, but I went and climbed it. I think I climbed Mount Rainier like 13 times or something with varying parts. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> yeah. Let's like... Sure. Let's get... We're just kind of doing your history here, but... Sure. So, you know, my my just now mm-hmm. when you were saying all this stuff, I was like, I wonder what her personal life was like. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that, <laughs> sure. but you know, we've got this kind of uh, a theme here of this obsessiveness. Um, <laughs> sure. Okay. Like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I want to be a ba- ballerina, so I'm gonna do twice as much as everybody else, and I'm gonna go to college, and I'm not just gonna run track, but I'm gonna do the swim team and I'm going to be captains of yeah. both of them. And then now that I'm in outward bound, I'm not just going to go on a course, but I'm going to become an instructor. And yeah. So, I mean, what was the rest of your life? I mean, we don't have to get into details. That but, was I mean, my how life. Are you, like, <laughs> how are you operating in the world in terms of, of uh, relationships or, I you know, just... I didn't have any. No. Like, I mean, I had friends. Right. But I was totally uninterested in love relationships. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, fulfilling the dream of becoming a real Outward Bound instructor. And and still, when I did that, in the back of my head, I was like, I'm going to be a guide. Like, mm-hmm. I want to I do this AMGA thing. Like, right. I didn't even know what it was, hardly, but I just had heard about it. And it's the American Men Guys Association. Exactly. <laughs> which I I've transitioned from that into being a firefighter now. So I, I continue with the American Men, men Guys Association. Guys. Men and Guys Association. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, you know, I I didn't really focus on my love relationships, to be right. honest with you. Okay. I, I I was too focused and that was maybe something like nowadays, whenever I hear about like I've mentored a few people in becoming guides. Mm-hmm. And like the first thing I say to them is, if they're women, 
don't sleep with anyone you work with right. ever. Right. And I never did. Uh-huh. I was, maybe that's why people thought of me as being kind of a prude, but mm-hmm. I just, I didn't party and I didn't sleep with people. And I just, I wanted, I was like really focused on becoming a guide and, and like doing it to the highest level that I could possibly do it to. Yeah. So, uh, I did meet somebody in like 2003 and we had an amazing relationship and he was extremely supportive of me going off and guiding and following mm-hmm. my dreams and making it happen. So it worked. It like worked with... Well, it did sort of right, work. Right. I mean, it worked to the effect that um, he eventually wanted to like settle down. Right. I was like maybe... I don't know how old I was. It was in that time period between being an outward bound instructor mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. working for the American Alpine Institute. And... I just realized that he wanted to like get married and have babies mm-hmm. and um and that wasn't going to be for right, me. Right, right. I wasn't ready. Yeah. And he was a good guy. Yeah, and I didn't want to get too intimate when I was talking about your social life, not just relationships, but family. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed like you were pretty singularly focused My on these things. My parents have always been honey, go do whatever right. you want as long as you're not hurting other people or hurt yourself. Right. Like they, wh- when I decided to come, when I did get hired by Outward Bound in 2001 and decided to move out, my parents. And they, they, re, they looked at your resume and were like, okay. You've got yeah, that. they did. Nice. And uh, my parents. They were probably just like, we're going to have to give her a job because she's going to keep coming back. I was. I was <laughs> persistent. I was excessively persistent, just which like, honestly. fine. That, if you wanted to, like, name that as a theme in my life, I am excessively persistent. So my parents were super supportive, though. They, they like, bought me a truck. Um, I I got help building out the back of it. Because, see, I had seen other guides with, like, the truck and the build-out. And I was like, I want that. You know, so I, like, graduated college. And my parents were like, I graduated late, by the way. I graduated college in 2000. And that was, really, that was when my parents... We're like, we're going to help you buy a truck. Mm-hmm. And they helped me build it out. And then I bought the camper shell. And so the long and short of it was that um, they they have always been cool. totally supportive. Right. Like, go do. Go do whatever. And we'll, we'll back you. Mm-hmm. So you're guiding then. I mean, did it, you started with Outward Bound and then graduated to peer peer climbing guiding at some point Mm -hmm. did it meet your expectations did it fulfill the ideas that you had about it it was awesome yeah i loved guiding for american alpine institute and i think i even think now that when my son is older i'm gonna go back Mm -hmm. i loved it it was exactly what i wanted to be doing and i I mean, I was going to be the eternal dirtbag. <laughs> I was going to live out of my 1984 Volkswagen van. Because at that point, I sold the truck, and I bought the Volkswagen van, and I drove it out to Washington State, and I was like, this is the life that right. I've been dreaming of. This is How what I How many times did it break down? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> I paid $22,000 out of my own pocket to fix that stupid van. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So what did your, in this period, you're, you know, the guiding thing was this 
this uh, shining star, this like whatever the, 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 the goal was. But then obviously your personal climbing, you know, was something you were pursuing as well. Did you, did you go after that the way you went after running, ballet, swimming? <laughs> I mean, was this also this thing that, you know, started to, yeah, I mean, did you yeah. go for it in the same way? Yeah, so... What happened with, at the American Alpine and, Institute? And, and where did you imagine yourself fitting into the community with that, too? Well, in terms okay. Of like, did you did you also have this idea of, you know, becoming a professional climber and like dethroning Sausage Julian or something like that as like the world's <laughs> best climber? Or, oh, well, you're super kind. I mean, it was a little bit before <laughs> Sausage Julian. I'm just saying, age like, group. <laughs> dethroning like whoever was number one or. Um, so really at that point, my goal was that I wanted to be guiding at a really high level and climbing at a really high level. Which are two things that don't always go together. Exactly. And I knew you were <laughs> going to say maybe that. maybe rarely. They do rarely go together. And and there are actually some super mm-hmm. talented guides that happen Absolutely. to also no, be super well. talented climbers. Yes, yes. But you're right. It is hard to do both. And here is what I decided And I told this to the American Alpine Institute when they hired me, and it was awesome. They were super supportive of it. First of all, in my resume that I sent them, I sent them a picture of me on belly full of bad berries in an invert. And they, you know, in my interview with them, mentioned that, and they were like, we are really psyched to have someone like you here. And I'm like, well, I'll just tell you that, you know, that route is like a singular route. But I got these little mini climbing sponsorships. And when you say they were like, oh, this is great. We want someone like you. Like, did they want, what did they, what, what, what do you think that meant? Like someone who, you know, has a little marketability that's like, we, Probably. Can, we can promote or we want someone who's like a really good rock climber? I think, or... I think both. Okay. I think they were probably looking for both. And I think the other piece to it was that at the interview, I said to them, I will tell you one thing, you know, working with Outward Bound, because at Outward Bound, I had like become an instructor trainer and I had gotten my, AM, back then it was the AMGA top rope site manager mm-hmm. thing. And I was looking at that AMGA track. And so they were, you know, they, I was in a good position to say, hey, I have this experience and I want to work for you guys. And um, they don't always get that. They they sometimes get people that are really, really green to teaching and guiding. And American Alpine Institute is always, I like them because they're different. They instruct and mm-hmm. they teach. Mm-hmm. They're not just guiding. Right. And um, I said, look, I, I really kind of just want to have time to go climbing on my own time. Is it okay if I say no to work? And they were like, kind of, pondering that notion because I'm in an inner, I said this in my interview, like, Hey, I got to be honest. I might say no to work. I might not always take the work you're giving me. Is that okay? And they took me Mm -hmm. as is. Right. And I said no to work. Like they offered me to go to Aconcagua. I did go to Denali and I ended up guiding on Denali five times, but Mm. that fit in with my climbing schedule. And that's the thing. I still had this notion of like, you know, I'm getting these mini sponsorships here and there. It'd be really cool to see how far I could take it. Right. And so in the interim of getting many sponsorships and getting really good work with American Alpine Institute, 
I also had to say no to some of these really incredible trips. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to pay you to go to South America. And I was like, no, that's during my climbing time. Right. Can't go. And um, that happened a couple times, and they were cool with it. They still offered me trips, and they still gave me a lot of options. And the options they gave me were awesome. I mean, I always got, I always kind of got what I wanted. And then when I wasn't working, I was going to Squamish, and I was climbing in other areas in Washington State, and I was going to Indian Creek and Zion. I went to Indian Creek and Zion uh, probably eight years in a row, Mm -hmm. spring and fall, um, three months for the total trip both times. And then one day woke up and said, maybe I should go somewhere else. (laughs) And I went to uh, Potrero Chico and Vegas, and I got guiding work in both of those places. So I did that for about four seasons. Mm -hmm. I went to Vegas and um, guided in Vegas. And like my first guiding trip in Vegas was to do this route, Black Orpheus. And I had no idea of the layout of Vegas. I'd been there one other time and sport climbed. And I was like, okay, three days to figure out the layout of the land here. And um, the scariest part of that Black Orpheus trip that first time was looking down and seeing my client with a pool of rope at his feet and remembering something that Tom Hargis told me. Um, he said, uh, you're pretty much soloing when you're guiding mm-hmm. and just be careful of that pool of rope. And I like saw this pool of rope and was like, oh, yeah, I'm soloing now. I'll take, I'll take the pool <laughs> of rope versus the, the, them tugging on you. Yeah, any day I mean, of the week. Both are kind of creepy. Yeah, but you're on the if you're you know you're not uh, the pool fall of rope at least. Yeah, yeah, your your soloing is fine because you're not going to fall. Yeah, but, but if the, someone starts like get, like shorting you, yeah, that's not good. That's not well, cool at all. Well, like, here you can't do anything about that. Here's the secret. I, I have to say though, here's he used the, to tell tell people like, yep, feed a the bunch rope, of the rope's touching the ground. That's perfect. Like, mm-hmm. don't if it stops touching the ground, put some more out there. Well. <laughs> Here's the secret, and and actually, um, this could segue. This, is secret. this could segue into a lot of other conversation right now. Here's the secret: I really wasn't that good of a climber in bouldering because I love all aspects of climbing. Like you take me to a climbing gym, and I'm like, yeah. You take me to right. go bouldering, and I'm like, sweet. Like I love it all, which is probably why I'm not an awesome, awesome climber. Like I maybe I could be like a five thirteen trad climber right now and living in Yosemite, but I love all the forms of climbing. But I really wasn't that awesome of a climber. So when I saw pools of rope down on Black Orpheus and I'm on the crux, I was like, oh my God. What's Black Orpheus rated? It's like a 10B. Oh, I thought it was easier than that. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's That gets in your head. 10A, 10B. I don't know. Sandy, you never climbed it before? Were you on siding? Yeah. Oh, man. And I did fine. (laughs) I did okay. I did, you know. Onsite guided. And I usually, like, (laughs) I onsite guided pretty much everything I did in uh, Vegas. Did you pretend you hadn't, or did you just tell me? No, I would tell the client, like, I've never done this route, and this is going to be an awesome adventure, and it's going to be super fun. And that's me. Like, I'm always, I try to be as honest as possible about everything. Um, I heard it outward bound. That the definition of integrity is what you do when nobody's looking. Uh-huh. And um, I've really tried to... Everybody clear your porn browser. 
<laughs> just just go in there out. get that thing cleared out uh, right now you heard it it's what you're you don't doing want people to find out what you're looking. doing nobody's looking. <laughs> and uh i like try to live by that you know still and it really sometimes bites me in the ass right. but so i tell my clients like hey yeah, i've never cool. done this yeah. and so um yeah, so that was the the kind of like segue maybe into some other conversation would be I really I'm not that good of a climber. I've had some really awesome moments of greatness. But um you know, I sometimes go like to Black Black Canyon's my favorite place to climb and I've done 42 routes right now and I'm really excited about that cuz I wanted to get to 50 before the, um January 1st of this year, but I realized like, why? I don't know. Oh, okay. I just wanted <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <All laughs> right. I like just there's was... nothing auspicious about 2018 in your well, 42 or are you turning some certain age or anything? No, I'll, yeah. I'll be 42. Oh. Um, oh, okay. Well, you hit 42 anyway. 42 yeah. roots, 42. That, that's that's so true. So there, be happy. I'm happy. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm like so happy. Um, but, you know, the thing that I try to do is seek out, this is nowadays especially, mm-hmm. I just like try routes that are particularly hard for me stylistically. Mm-hmm. So a great example is I went to, um, I went down to Boulder with Steph and we got on, um, Steph Bergner, we got on some routes. In, Nobody knows who that is. Nobody knows that that's just. The Enormo baby's mother. <laughs> um, and, and, and by the way, Steph keeps me clean because I've gone to the Black Canyon with her once or twice where I felt like I wasn't at the top of my game. And so ever since then, I've been like, oh, I'm going climbing with Steph. I'm going to make sure that all my gear is hyper-organized and everything matches, and I'm hyper safe with her. And I really, I mean, I should, I, I try to do that with everybody, but like there was like maybe a year where I was like, oh, you know, I got kind of like messy personal life and this and that going on. And it was and reflected in your rack organization. It was totally reflected in my rack organization. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like, it looked like, you know, a messy toilet or something right. so um so your example of the of the project or of the, of the route that doesn't fit your yeah like it was this 510c but see what i look at when i like i go okay it's a 510c and it doesn't suit my style it's like kind of slabby and weird and there's going to be weird feet and i can see that it's kind of like sporty bolted or or whatever it, it may be i mean even if it's something at the black canyon where it's like run out. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, well, I'm going to just try to do this route and I don't care what it's rated. If it's a 510, it, it I've, I've just let go of that ego. Mm-hmm. Like I used to, when I was first trying to get sponsorship and, and I've gone to like, I don't know, maybe seven OR shows. And at some point I even decided like, I'm not even going to go try to market myself. Like I had Mad Rock mm-hmm. climbing as a sponsor. I had, um, Static climbing that the chalk bags that are amazing, gnarly nutrition and Omega Pacific. And I was like, you know, I'm getting the things I need to do these projects. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just gonna like go to the OR show, hang out with these people that know me that I like. I'm gonna do what they want me to do, and then I'm gonna go climbing in Salt Lake because Cotton, Little Cottonwood Canyon's awesome, mm-hmm. and I want to go climbing. It was at that point where I was like, I'm going to start trying to climb. Instead of like going to Indian Creek and I'm going to try like 513s there, what would happen if I tried all the shit that I'm really bad at? So I started seeking out styles that were bad for me, like the dry tooling, mm-hmm. um, slab climbing, um, run out climbing. I don't care if it's 510, if it's run out. And I don't mean... I, I mean, I'm thinking like Black Canyon run out where you're like, damn, <laughs> my piece is way over there and it's tiny. Like I started seeking that out because I figured out that in order for me to get better and and at that point, maybe I was still thinking about sponsorships, but in order for me to become a better climber, I needed to do the stuff that I was really bad at and Primarily, I'm a trad climber, so I was like, I got to get better at these things because this is what I'm going to encounter in harder trad routes. Right. So that's why, you know, I'm not I'm not really that good of a climber, <laughs> <laughs> but I try really right, hard, right. and occasionally I get like, I do cool things. Right. Well, you're kind of dabbling with sponsorship. What did you learn from all that? I've learned a couple things, but the first thing I've learned about it is that, you know, I'm not very good at promoting myself. (laughs) And I think that's a piece to it, especially nowadays with social media. That's a piece to it that just wasn't part of my, it wasn't on my radar Mm -hmm. when um, I was trying to get sponsored. And the other thing I've learned... Well, you had the image that I think most people have that if you're a really good climber... Yeah. That's they'll come to you sort of. Yeah. Or you know, you have to you have to sort of make it known that you're a really good climber and yeah. then they'll be like, All right, she's good. She's yeah. better than everybody else or seems to be, then we'll pick her up. Yeah. yeah. Which is totally wrong. It it is totally wrong. And and so the the other piece to that is if you're not a an amazing climber, you need to be really good at promoting yourself. And I don't say that in a way that's like degrading or like um you know, saying that that's a bad thing. That's no, no, actually I, I, a good I, thing. We've said that on the show before. I mean, it's not like promoting yourself. The idea of self-promotion definitely has a bad ring to it. But yeah. it's about being able to tell a story. It's about yes. being able to engage with an audience. It's mm-hmm. about being able to present the climbing that you do as interesting and exciting and, yeah. and that can be done on routes that aren't the top of the game. Well, and it's a special, it's a special talent. Mm-hmm. And that talent is also a thing that can be rewarded. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so it, it's, again, when the first comes out of your mouth, it sounds like you're dissing somebody. But totally it, not. But the fact is, is that, you know, I'm good at this normal cast thing, you know. Hell and, Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that that sort of played itself out. I didn't know I would be good at it. But, you know, it just, and that's your, you know, people who listen or whatever or donate or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're rewarding me for this talent. Yeah. And that's great. And it's fine. And I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, they're not rewarding me because I necessarily am a really good climber. Yeah. And well, it's the same as in any other sponsorship. Well, let's, let's put it. I mean, it, you have to be pretty good. Climber. Let's put it, you do, but let's put it this way. 
You have to have. You can't com- be a doofus. You, you have to have confidence. <laughs> right. And what I've noticed in friends of mine who are currently seeking sponsorship, or I've been with them through their mm-hmm. process of getting amazing sponsorship, is that they are very, very confident people. Now, here is where I see it: is that my path in life, I wasn't supposed to be a sponsored climber, and I was barking up that tree. And what I realized is that that actually isn't my vocation or my calling. Mm -hmm. Like my vocation is to be a firefighter EMT. I have a lot more confidence in that. And I have, quote unquote, maybe um, promoted myself with being a firefighter EMT in the fact that I try hard, I work hard, I want it, I want to be good at that job, and I try my best to speak intelligently about it when I'm there at work, and I try my best to be 150% focused when I'm there. And what I've discovered is that the, the gifts and talents that I have to offer the world is with being a firefighter EMT. Mm-hmm. That that's what I'm like meant to do. Mm-hmm. I wish I was doing it when I was 18 because I'd be retiring <laughs> <laughs> right now. But then you'd have time to do the three roots of it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um but conversely, I kept barking up this tree of like I want to be a sponsored climber and I want I want to feel what that feels like and I didn't quite achieve it. But but it's okay because I wasn't meant to do that. I, mm-hmm. I'm so satisfied and I feel so good about being a firefighter EMT and I feel so good about representing that community and being part of that community that it's okay that I never got this like crazy sponsorship in climbing. And I did get sponsorship with some smaller companies who I am totally grateful to and totally appreciate and they totally saw my gifts for what they were and that feels really good too so you know it's maybe it's more about recognizing where my gifts and talents were and uh i'm 42 almost so i'm not going to be like i'm not going to be like knocking on the door of somebody to give me a sponsorship at this point for climbing or or whatever but I am really psyched to knock on the door of, ah, I've got this new career and I'm going to do my best at that. And, and you mentioned in, a, in another conversation that sort of a friend and, and maybe mentor of yours kind of mentioned your ability to undermine yourself yeah. a little bit, which, yeah. which I find, I mean, this whole conversation has been about just how focused you can be yeah. and how this path you've taken you know, led you to guiding and led you to doing all these mm-hmm. adventures. And, and, you know, and it's really interesting, you know, because going back to this idea that I get these emails of like, how do I get into this? I live in blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. how do I, you know, what do I do? Like, how do I dip my toe? And that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So if we stop now, everybody would walk away like, holy shit, that lady was like this force of nature like how did you know how did she mm-hmm. just like juggle all those things and get all that stuff done and yet you have this word you mentioned to me called undermine that yeah you undermine yourself I, I and what, what does that mean like where does that fit into this in your personalities 
Okay. Is it driving you? Is it driving you? And what does it mean to undermine you? So uh, this actually really fits in chronologically to what I've been talking about. Because mm-hmm. when I think about my climbing, I think about like, what have I done chronologically? And so um, in 2011, I got this idea to try and free Moonlight Buttress. And um, I had no idea who I was going to do it with and how it would come to fruition. All I knew was that um, I wanted to try it because Indian Creek crack climbing happened to be what I was good at. And that was where I didn't undermine myself. I wasn't like, oh, I need to climb 510 because I need to learn the style before I can get good at it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, I can climb. I feel comfortable climbing 512 at Indian Creek. Even if it's like something that's hand size dependent, I can do it. And so um, I went on this, well, I met this guy, uh, Chris Alber in rifle. Cause I was climbing in rifle to work on my weaknesses. And cause I was like, Oh, I'm not good enough to try 512 in rifle. And I kind of dabbled around in rifle for like probably nine or eight or nine years at that point. And Chris, I met Chris, we started climbing together and, um, Chris basically said to me, you're a shitty climber. You don't use your feet. You don't use your legs. You don't use your hips. You try to do pull-ups. You think you can just get away with that. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't. And I was like, oh, well, tell more. That's tell me more. That's in Indian Creek. It was. Yeah. it was. It was like, and not really knowing how to sport climb. I mean, straight I, line, a completely straight line. Yeah, like I was a boulderer <laughs> on my mm-hmm. training, quote, training mm-hmm. time. But when I was like climbing at Indian Creek, you really keep your center of gravity below you. Mm-hmm. And you're always climbing within this realm of your center of gravity because there's nowhere else to go. You right. can't go way out of your center of gravity. There's nowhere to go. Right. So I started climbing with Chris and he was like, what's your goal? And I was like, really? Really? And he was like, really? And I'm like, well, I have a one-year-old son. Um... I'm a single parent and I want to climb Moonlight Buttress. And he was like, well, honey, you need to train. And I was like, how do I train? And he was like, you need to do laps and learn how to use your legs. And I was like, okay, tell me what to do. So for a year, Chris and I climbed together in rifle. I mean, I did my Indian Creek traveling as much as I could with a one-year-old and like, you know, I did a lot. Mm-hmm. But Rifle was so close to home, I was like, I'm going to do this. And I, for the first time ever, I stopped undermining myself. I stopped saying like, oh, well, you know, I need, in order to get sponsored, I need to climb harder. Instead, I just focused on what he was telling me to focus on, which was like, we're going to do a bunch of laps. So he basically said, you need to learn how to climb the warmups here and he's like, I'm not talking five nine. You need to be able to warm up on five eleven and five twelve. And I'm like, I can't do that. And he's like, No, 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 you can't. Wait, what year was this? 2011. <laughs> and I was like, There's no like 
when we met before that, yeah, there's no way I would have thought that you were someone who was like having trouble warming up on the five elevens and rifle. I was like, totally that you had all like that you couldn't just have all that shit on lockdown. Well, that was like my secret. That's that was like it. my thing where I was like, oh, I can climb five twelve and five thirteen at Indian Creek, right. but nowhere else right. can I really do this. Okay, all right. So I, mean, I, I know that feeling. I'm not saying that. Yeah, it's not unusual because I def- I climbed harder there before I could ha- climb hard sport climbing as well. But just the, what I thought of you or knew of you, I it wouldn't even have occurred to me. I could like I didn't. I wasn't sitting there judging what you could and couldn't climb. No, it was I just know. something I wouldn't even have thought about. Like, well, oh yeah, was... if I went to Rife with Mary, we'd both like no. huck a couple laps on on you know the meets to no. warm up, and then we no 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 you know no. do our hard warm up on the totally not there. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally not there, and I and and like I didn't want to tell anyone I wasn't there because. Other people had already heard, like, oh, Mary Harlan did, like, Belly Full of Bad Berries. Sure, see, that's what I'm talking about. Mary Harlan, like, can kind of climb hard at the creek. And I worked on a V9 with um, James Lucas in Mm -hmm. Washington State and was like, yeah, I'm, like, bouldering hard. But when it just came to, like, really putting the work into climbing hard at at any level, Mm -hmm. anywhere, I didn't really have it. Like, I was very, like stone specific and style specific Mm -hmm. and it was really this guy chris who kind of like gave me that like this is how you train this is how you use your body like this is what we're gonna do so what we did was we started out where he would have me go up five tens at rifle Mm -hmm. where i would lead it and then instantaneously without untying without stopping i would do two top ropes Mm -hmm. And then we do another 510, lead it, top rope it two times. 511, lead it, top rope it two times. 512, lead it. And I would walk away ruined this is a and good friend. wrecked. This is a good friend. Yeah. Putting up with that shit. He totally put up with the shit. <laughs> and on top of it, I mean, I would do the same for him. I mean, you were belaying him on his projects. So well, that's, just, that's w- also like tedious. Yeah. And, horrible, and, so. and I would do this. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I would do the same thing for him, except his starting point was 512. Sure. And my st- starting point was 510. Mm-hmm. And he would let me start right. so that I would be kind of wrecked by the time he was starting. Like basically by the time I was ending my 12 pitches that day, mm-hmm. He was starting on what I ended with. Right, okay. So that's how it went. Yeah, and, it's a good partnership. Though. And then we went in the winter, and he brought his um, propane heater, right. and we'd stand in front of it and warm our hands. And the goal for the winter of 2011, 2012, and 2012, 2013, because this like went on for a whole year, was that I would get extended family in rifle. Mm-hmm. So Choss family to extended family, except I still hadn't gotten Choss family, which is the 11D. So I was doing the first, I did the first three bolts and then I did the first five bolts and I did the first pitch. And, and for then, perspective, like totally standard warm up. Yeah. For everybody. Yeah, like everybody's like, oh, and even now when I go to rifle. Hey, can I just huck a lap real quick? I know. Can, no, it's, seriously, only take me a minute. Can I, I just huck a lap real quick? And it literally quick? takes, and, and here's what's awesome is now uh, when I go to rifle. You can be that person. I'm that person. Be that dickhead. But I also have. Hey, can I just chuck a lap? It'll only take me a minute. I know. I and But I do have the patience for, I when know, I see it kidding. occupied by someone yeah. projecting no, it, I'm like, okay, I can 
back off and let that person do their mm. thing and I'll go do something else. So how'd Moonlight Buttress go? Amaze balls. Yeah. It was awesome. And I did you climb that way? Chris Brazo, okay. who is um, from Golden BC and he's totally under the radar. He's written a few ski mountaineering articles for Alpinist mm-hmm. magazine and for some other ski magazines, but he's totally under the radar, no social media ever. Um, if I want to talk to him, I got to call him. Mm-hmm. And um, he... How barbaric. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. And he and I climbed together for a month in Indian Creek in um, the spring of 2013. And I um, also climbed with Quinn, Brett, um, during that trip as well. And she gave me some really good pointers. She reconned Moonlight Buttress with us. It was like my sixth recon of the route, but um, she did a recon and her goal wasn't her, she, that that season she was um, doing some speed um, speed aiding and ended up doing three routes in a day in Zion speed aiding and the and that technique and style mm-hmm. that kind of she and Libby and those other folks kind of developed but um, they they were focused on that but Quinn went on that with us and. I, I didn't quite do so awesome on the recon. I was a little intimidated because I was like, wow, I'm like doing this for real with like real climbers now. Like I'm not messing around. And um, Chris was like the most amazing partner for me. He he was really low key. He was really um, relaxed. He was really confident and he was really confident in me. And um, he, he had some suggestions and styles that I wasn't familiar with to doing uh, a, a long route quickly and efficiently that I adopted. And um, man, it was awesome. I, I uh, fell twice and hung once on it, and that was good for me. I am like really proud of that. I'm not, again, I'm not like, I'm not looking to like free the Dawn Wall. <laughs> Like, I, I'm like not in that category, but the category that I fall into is like, I'm super proud of that ascent. That was like a, that was my high point and my peak for sure in my climbing. You're was, on a downward slide now? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't say I'm on a downward slide, but what I am saying maybe is that um, I recognize the uh, work, the amount of work and the amount of focus that goes in to me succeeding on that one route. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have since then attempted to put more work and more try hard and more focus into doing three routes free in a day in Zion. And it's taken me a couple years mm-hmm to recognize that um, that having a child and a full-time job and I'm freshly married and we bought a house, that all these kind of cool life things. <laughs> that stuff that I was wondering if you were completely and utterly denying no. for, for like a decade? No, I mean, stuff, mean, I kind of denied it. <laughs> Honestly, I denied right. it for a long time, but... Um, uh, 
you know, getting pregnant and having my son was an amazing experience. And in my mind, I was like, I can keep chugging along mm -hmm. and doing what this I'm is, doing. This would be another thing that I do. Exactly. And Captain of the swim team, mom. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't kind of work. Same thing. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. And the coolest part is that, like, the ego that I did have, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you got to have some ego to be successful in any sport. I've kind of put a, in the on the back burner because I don't want it anymore. Mm -hmm. I actually want to be a good mom and I want to be. A good wife and I want to like be good at my new job and I want to be I want to have all these things just like I want to be kind of sort of good at all the styles of climbing mm -hmm. but in order to have all those things you have to just be like okay I can put work into this but sometimes you're gonna be good at a good climber and you're not gonna be a good mom right and sometimes you're gonna be a really good mom and you're not gonna be a good climber and sometimes you're going to be a good wife and you're going to suck at your job. And I have to be okay with that. Right. So I'm okay with that now. That, that it, It's taken me a long time to be okay with the fact that I may never be the climber that I envisioned I might be, but I'm a better climber because I'm also feeling good about how I'm being a mom. Right. And I'm feeling good about my being, you know, good to my husband. And I'm feeling good about going to my job. And, and that's what, that's essentially the evolution of all of it was that I was unsuccessful at linking up these three routes. Weather got in the way. Partners changed. I wasn't feeling good. My partner wasn't feeling good. Like there was all these things. And I was like... At first, I was like, oh, I put a year and a half training into like doing three routes in a day in Zion free. And then I just was like, wait, why does it really matter? It's just climbing. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I have like a kid who's getting older and he needs to get more involved in his stuff. And I want him to be involved and I want to be involved in it. Sure. And then I was like, yeah, I'm kind of not being a good wife. And then I got this amazing full-time firefighting job changed my career in 2014 to firefighter but then in 2016 got the full-time job and then these guys were like uh sorry sweetheart you can't just like go climbing anymore you got to be good at your job because you're getting paid to be there on somebody's worst day and i was like oh this is serious i gotta take this seriously so my ego had to completely detach from the whole climbing thing and all this stuff that I'd built my life and my identity on for like a hundred years. Mm -hmm. And I had to like let go of that identity entirely. And uh, now, I mean, now I actually, I'm supposed to do the link up in the spring with Madeline Sorkin. And I'm so grateful because she is an awesome She's climber. She's a pretty good climber. Yeah. And I really, well, I mean, I realized letting my ego go mm -hmm. that like, I need a partner who's going to, who it has the longevity and the experience of being better than me for a long time, whose life is climbing and someone who I like, who I get along with, who I respect, 
who I think is our our personalities match up. Mm-hmm. We're both kind of eccentric, quirky, but dedicated people. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of wanted to do it with someone like that, and I realized that like I'm not going to be the star of the show. That that person is going to help me succeed at my goal, but she could go probably do it tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I have a lot of respect for that. And being a mom, being a wife, really doing my best to be a, a as good of a firefighter and EMT as I can possibly be and having a lot of respect for that job, I just don't have the time and the ego to put into... I'm going to be the star of the show. I'm going to be the best. Mm -hmm. So instead I'm like, okay with like letting it like just be what it is. And I'm still dedicated to that project, but like I'm more dedicated in just having fun. Like if I fall all over it or hang, as long as I finish it under 24 hours, I'm good. (laughs) There's still some rules. 23 hours and 59 minutes. All right. Well, cool, Mary. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. (laughs) And that's a wrap. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And, of course, thanks to Mary for sitting down. So nice to just chat with a friend of mine, and uh, I found out a lot of stuff about her that I didn't know, actually, once we got deep into it. So that was fun for me. I hope it was good for you guys, too. And remember, if you run into Mary out there, she is one of the nicest people you're ever going to meet at the cliff. So go up and talk to her. Say hi. Okay, be safe out there, everybody, no matter what you're doing, especially climbing. Communicate. Communicate. Very, very important. And of course, check your knot.